Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome back to the show. As always, great to be here. All right, we got a lot to talk about. You've been doing a lot of reporting on IPOs, which is something that you haven't done a little bit. We've talked about that on the pod a little bit. You also had what I thought was a super cool long-form report. We're going to put it in the show notes on SPACs, on zombie companies masquerading in the form of SPACs publicly listed that actually went public through the SPAC vehicle over the last few years. And you had a really a lot of interesting things to say about some of them and some investors finding some unusual value in them. So that's a pretty interesting one. Obviously, we have the Apple event going on right now as you and I are recording here Tuesday at about 1.40 or so. So we'll talk a little bit about expectations there, how that stock has been trading. Oracle is down 12% today. This is the day after they reported earnings and guided. And we'll talk a little bit about what we think is going on there. And then a whole host of other things. Instacart's going public, Arm's going public here. We'll talk about some of the valuations and how it relates to some things, some trends in the markets right now. Deepa, let's start on Apple here. What I think is interesting is that a month and a half ago, this stock was making new all-time highs. It was over a $3 trillion market cap. The company reported and guided, largely left out of the AI frenzy that's gone on in other parts of the tech market. Investors did not like the guidance. The stock sold off really hard. The stock had been coming back a little bit. And then the news out of China, basically that the government is going to ban and government workers using iPhones in the workplace here. So here we are. We have the iPhone 15 event. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing that's been reported about this new phone that seems really exciting is the standardization of the USB-C port here. So Exciting is a strong word, Yes, Dan. I said it. If you're listening, you probably <laughs> couldn't see the sarcasm in my facial gestures here. So talk to me about Apple here, because again, as the largest equity in the land, it's broken technically. The narrative has shifted a little bit about their growth prospects. Investors are starting to maybe just challenge the valuation if they are not going to be wrapped up in all the excitement about large language models and the like here. So talk to me about Apple. I'm a little bit less interested in the USB-C <laughs> yeah, saga, exactly. a little more interested in the other C that investors seem to time and time again underestimate with Apple. And that is the big China factor. And it feels there's a little bit of complacency and sometimes investors forget how much Apple and Tim Cook are dependent on the Chinese market. It happened earlier this year in Zhengzhou, which is iPhone City, when there were protests and it put sort of the supply chain in peril. And Tim Cook said that, okay, they're working on diversification. They're looking to places like India, but that of course is going to be really slow. It sort of appeased investors in Wall Street for the time being, but then you have this, which is a potential ban, right? This is the news item is that the Chinese government is saying that if you are a state employee, you cannot buy an iPhone. And it happened at the same time when Huawei, if anyone remembers that company, this is a Chinese national company. They're very big, but 
the U.S. export ban essentially killed their smartphone business a few years ago. And they're now, some are speculating that their smartphone business is back from the dead because SMIC, another Chinese chip company, is able to make more advanced chips. And all of this together just presents a threat to the gains that Apple has made in terms of market share, right? When Huawei phones, which were very popular then, and they had advanced phones, they had lower end ones. When their business was killed by essentially the Trump administration, and then the Biden administration, Apple gained market share. I think it went from something like under 50% to 70%. That's a big deal in a market like China. And now that's threatened. However, I would also like to add though, that in terms of China headlines over the years, these don't seem particularly big. To me, Zhengzhou and what was happening at the iPhone factories there was a much bigger deal because Chinese consumers, they still love iPhones. I'll never forget, Dan, when I lived there. And I was in China when the first iPhone came out. And then a few years later, I remember even my AI, AI is your cleaner, your helper, everyone, someone who helps you around the house. She's got her iPhone. She's not someone who you typically think would have one, especially in those early days. But that's how much a Chinese consumer has always really loved iPhones and that's only grown. So I don't think a government ban is going to erase that. And I also don't think that Huawei phones are going to pose real competition. Yeah. So it's interesting because that Huawei phone has definitely gotten some headlines here. And so some of the chips and the processes that are being used, are still like being made on seven nanometer processes rather than the most advanced ones at four nanometers. And again, what does that mean? It means speed. It means a whole host of other things that go into the phone. So the chip ban and the potential ban of these handsets and all this sort of stuff, it's going to continue to go back and forth. I think consumers don't really care much about it. They just want to know what they have the potential access to. China has been a really good growth area for them over the last couple years or so, 20% or so of their sales come from China. So I, I think to, to suggest that if things were dialed up from a trade standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, I think some of the precedent that had been set when, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, when Russia invaded Ukraine, multinationals, U.S. multinationals might be faced with a whole host of different things. And, and when you think about what the Chinese are doing with these supposed bans, they're really trying to dial up nationalistic tendencies. So I, I think it's also interesting that this iPhone 15 will be the very first first iPhone ever where on launch day, it's being shipped from India or some that are made in India. And so I, I go in different directions with this is, okay, if there are going to be nationalistic sort of tendencies dialed up, and I know that you've lived over there and you've seen some of this and you've talked about this, sometimes they, they're very short lived. But if Apple is reorienting their supply chains and manufacturing away from China, that might be what's different this time, right? And so to me, when you think about a company that has actually benefited a great deal as market share in the U.S., has become very saturated, right? Growth areas like China are really, really important. So we'll see how all of that played out. I'll just say this for a stock that's trading about 27 times next year with expected earnings growth of, let's say, high single digits, eight, nine percent on sales growth of six, seven percent. That's very expensive for this stock historically. Okay. So that, that's the only thing that I'll just kind of place. And that might be one of the reasons why investors are okay saying, you know what? I've had a great run in this thing. It nearly doubled from year ago lows. I'm going to hit the sell button. Yeah. And when you think too, that growth is actually contracting and that smartphone market, as you said, is saturated. However, something we've talked about in the past, Dan, is that maybe the new Apple thesis isn't on number of iPhones sold. It's on that installed base, right, of 2 billion devices. And people having those devices in their hands, they're going to be paying more for services. We know that is a growth area for Apple. However, I can't remember, I think it was Dan Niles actually, who brought me this argument this week, is 
that installed base is worth more in the U.S. than it is in India or China because the consumer in the U.S. is going to spend a lot more on services than a consumer in India or China. So he threw a bit of cold water on that notion, which I thought was wise. Yeah, no, I'm actually in that camp too. When you think about the great firewall, you think about the device. If you're paying such a premium for a piece of hardware, a lot of Chinese users are very dependent on the super apps, that sort of thing, which, you know, one of the reasons because the market share ship, which great to lower priced Android sort of phones where they get all of the services on the super apps. That's not something that Apple is willing to comply with for a whole host of reasons as far as uh, obviously the issues in in, in what can be on the phones and what sort of data tracking and and the like here. So that one is going to be really interesting to see how the stock reacts to the phones because we expect them to be very evolutionary here. Let's talk a little bit about the IPO market that, that seems to be back here. So the Instacart, you were on CNBC. You've been very active reporting on Instacart here. It's the, I think the valuation that the company is targeting is something that it looks about a quarter of the valuation of their last private market fundraising or the high watermark for that. Talk to me a little bit about what you're hearing from investors, because obviously this is a big moment. It's another gig economy company that's coming to market, but the valuation and, and the excitement in and around it is obviously very depressed from a couple years ago levels here. Two words here that I think are really key to the whole story and the IPO market as we see it begin to crack open, and that is valuation disparity. This is something that folks here in San Francisco have been talking about for a very long time. And what the Instacart IPO is going to do is hit them over the head with it. So this idea of valuation disparity, a lot of startups, they raised money, let's say in 2021, when tech multiples were a lot higher in the public markets. So that's when Instacart raised at a $39 billion valuation, right? A lot has happened since then. We've seen valuation compression, certainly in the private markets, but what public markets and startups, a lot of them have done, is just stuck their head in the sand. Said, you know, we're gonna wait for this market to come back so that we can get close to that valuation or reclaim that valuation of 2021. What Instacart tells us a few years later is that we're still nowhere near that. And if you want to be a viable public company, you're going to have to take a hit valuation wise. So it's reported valuation now that it's looking for in its IPO is less than $10 billion. That essentially amounts to a massive down round. Others have done that stripe. You could argue that they haven't done enough. And remember that Instacart didn't raise money at a different valuation. It marked it down itself through something called a 409A. But there's a lot of companies, especially in fintech, who just haven't done that. And they're still listed on a site that I use. It's a CB Insights list of unicorn, like a chime, valued at over $20 billion. There is no way anyone is going to pay more than $20 billion for this company. So if you want to be a public company, you want to go public sometime in the next few years, founders, startups, they may have to accept that this valuation disparity is going to hit them and it's time to wake up and face that music. I know in your reporting, you've looked at some other comps and, and that kind of valuation hit to get this deal out of the of the gate and, and deemed to be successful. Because listen, when you think about VCs who are, are have been invested in this company for 10 years, this is their opportunity. They will make a lot of money. The only way you lose a lot of money is if you're one of the folks who are investing at $39 billion or so. Surprising you know. large amount of them too. There was an, I think there was like 38 investors in that $39 
$9 billion round. Some of them were follow-ons, but there was a lot of new ones that are going to lose money on this. Yeah. And it's worth noting because I saw on CNBC, you were talking about the valuation relative to, let's say, a DoorDash. Well, DoorDash has a $32, $33 billion market cap, right? And if you think about where that thing is down 65% from its all-time highs when Instacart was raising at near $40 billion or so, it, it just shows you like how people are just not particularly interested in a lot of these consumer-based models, which brings me to like the excitement in and around, and I know you've been talking a lot about this, it just seems like AI in the private markets, AI in the public markets, that's what people want. Now, here's an interesting one, and this is a bit of a segue here. Airbnb, which has been a very successful IPO from a couple years ago and trades at a premium to a lot of it, the traditional incumbents in the hospitality space, if you want to look at the, the hotel stocks and everything like that, they just put a gentleman, and you were talking about this, I think, with Carl yesterday on air, the AI lead at Google is joining the Airbnb board. Are we likely to see more of this? Because does it point at least directionally from the C-level suite where some of these companies like an Airbnb wants to go with their platform and the like? And do they expect that these sorts of announcements will help with valuation also? Of course. And I think there's there's many different degrees of doing this, right? And we've seen that happen over the last year, let's call it less than a year, but since a generative AI hype cycle has been in sort of full effect, you can either go on your earnings call and announce some kind of chat bot. You can hire someone who's AI associated to be on your team. But I think that when Airbnb does things, they do it more thoughtfully than some others. Brian Chesky, the CEO, didn't come out and say, okay, we've got all of these new AI, generative AI features. He says, listen, we've been incorporating artificial intelligence into our platform. We're just getting started on generative AI. And he essentially said, we're not going to announce a chat bot, but what I am going to tell you is that it's going to make this platform look completely different by next year. And so getting someone like James Manyika, he's not the most well-known name in AI, although he is very well-known, but not, you know, to the average retail investor. But he's someone who's really thoughtful that sits at the intersection of society and technology. This is a new role that Google created, um, I think, in the last year. And he sits on a federal board that oversees the integration of artificial intelligence in society. So it's an interesting move. And I think that Airbnb, they're working with someone like him. They haven't announced anything, but I think that we can expect interesting things from Airbnb versus a company that says we've got someone on the board or we have a chat bot or we collect a lot of data. It's going to be used for AI. So in this case, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I would also mention that Airbnb is now approaching that $100 billion market cap uh, mark after rising about 20% just over the last few weeks. That earnings report and the guidance investors liked here, very nearing 52-week highs, but also interesting to note from those 2021 post IP. IPO highs, the stock's still down 35% or so. Now, one of the things, D, and, and for me, if I'm looking at Gap Earnings, this is a company that was unprofitable when it went public. It's very profitable now, expected to grow earnings 37% this year, but supposed to decelerate to about 11% next year. That would be Gap Earnings growth, trading about 32 times or so. And when I think about that, it's interesting going back to the Instacart in a way, when you have these companies coming out to the public markets, investors 
investors now, if there's more competition, at least in these sorts of business models, and I'm not going to kind of compare Instacart to Airbnb, but there are some similarities. A couple of years ago, we would have wrapped them all into one bucket yeah. or so. Earnings growth of, again, 11% expected sales growth next year of 13%. This is not a high growth company trading at a pretty hefty multiple, about 32 times and a $100 billion market cap. Isn't it wild that we're talking about the gig economy or shared economy, the, the greatest disruptors of the 2010s sort of maturing, right? They're not as exciting as they used to be. And so one thing that I find really interesting about this Instacart IPO is that for once, retail investors may not be left holding the bag here. If this is a company that went public a few years ago when DoorDash and Airbnb went public and Uber and Lyft, certainly, that was in 2019, they would have gone pub- it would have gone public at its peak at that $39 billion valuation. And it would have been retail investors who would have largely bought it on the open market. The fact that it's going public at a less than $10 billion valuation maybe means that finally the retail investor has a chance to buy something at a more reasonable valuation. So in my mind, that's a good thing. Instacart may have been seeing 100% growth during the pandemic. Last year, I think it was 30%. It's, it may be flat. Um, in the latest quarter of this year. And I think that is just more reasonable and I think paints a better picture. And there's certainly more information for retail investors to go off of and decide whether they want to buy this blockbuster name, by the way, that they haven't been able to invest in for the 10 years of its existence while they've been using the app and getting comfortable with it. Yeah. And, and no doubt. And, you know, again, uh, you know, going back to some of these comparisons, Airbnb is a company that has 83% gross margins. So even if growth is decelerating fairly massively, if they uh, look, look to push into some other areas to gain uh, some kind of revenue growth here, and they're able to maintain that margin structure, you're going to pay a premium multiple for that. If you look at a DoorDash, for instance, it's got a margin of 48%. Okay. And so here's a company that is also seeing decelerating growth. So these are the sorts of things that when the investment banks initiate on an Instacart in a month from the IPO, these are the sorts of comparisons that you're going to start seeing. And these are the sorts of things that investors are going to be able to pick at. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that a big case against a lot of these gig economy companies, whether it was Uber and Lyft or these delivery companies, is that uni economics really stink for a lot of them. I think Airbnb has proven that is not the case when you are serving as a middle platform for people who want to list their homes for uh, rental and those who want to acquire or, or rent them. So to me, that, that platform seems to stand above some of these delivery ones. I would also say that Brian Chesky and his CFO, Dave Stevenson, who comes from Amazon, have been a lot more disciplined financially. I'll take the example of Uber, Dar Khazar Shah, he took over and he and Travis too before him. I shouldn't just say him, but they have these huge ambitions. They've been scaling them back. But I think that when the pandemic pandemic hit Chesky at Airbnb, he acted quickly. He cut their workforce and became a lot more efficient. So credit to him to running the company in a way that I think is a counterexample for how bad the gig economy of an investment it can be. So we're talking gig economy here, right? But then you have the juxtaposition of the ARM IPO, which will debut this week. And its valuation is in a whole different league than what we're seeing from Instacart because Masasan, SoftBank, the company itself wants to be seen as an AI play. Very little to show for it so far, but the upper end of that targeted IPO range values it like an AI play. So it'll be interesting to see whether investors buy into that. And if this is another opportunity that you see retail investors buy at the peak or they get in early to a great AI play. 
Yeah, and I guess the jury's going to still be out on that one because I think when this company, you know, early this year when it was on all the lists for 2023 IPOs, I don't think their exposure to generative AI and supercomputers and the testing model, I don't think that was part of the story. And I think that they adopted that in spring into the summer. And if that IPO goes well, it'll be on the expectation that they're going to actually be able to move into that and gain some share and, and all the like here. But if it fails, like ultimately, what I find most interesting about these two companies coming to market right now is that with a NASDAQ 100 that's up 40% in the year, you would think that this is a good environment right now to tell some decent stories, bring your stock to market here. But if they don't do well, post the deal, I think that could be something that could really weigh on the NASDAQ, in, in my opinion, because again, this is coming at a time where Microsoft and Apple, two of the largest tech names, obviously, are the two largest tech names, post their earnings and the guide that they gave. And I don't think there were any major problems in either one of them. Those stocks sold off hard. NVIDIA, we talked a little bit about, yeah, it made a new all-time high following its results and guidance, but the story in NVIDIA going forward is going to be deceleration in the growth rates that drove the stock up to a trillion dollars in market cap. So to me, I always look at some of these sorts of events like IPOs that are going to be all over CNBC and the Wall Street Journal and the FT for the next couple of weeks or so to gauge sentiment for investors, not just, you know, public investors who are or retail investors who for the first time have access to them, but also public investors who were participating in these companies in the growth rounds going back to many of these companies that the mutual fund companies or the hedge funds that normally would be the buyers on the IPOs. They've had opportunities, not with the arm, but they've had opportunities to participate in these in the private markets. So let's see how they trade post-IPO, because that really might determine how the NASDAQ closes the year, in my opinion. Whether we see this window sort of stay open, but let me try and bring this full circle. If you're looking at ARM, we talked about Apple and the China risk. Whew. Make sure you check out ARM and its China risk, because that is something that shouldn't be ignored if you're looking to buy into that. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. I know this is not a name that, that is entirely um, on your radar too often, but this would be Oracle and their exposure, again, to the, the cloud services that um, lots of folks that are moving very hard into generative AI are going to need these sorts of exposure. You and I have spent a lot of time over the last few months talking about Google Cloud and AWS and Microsoft Azure. Oracle's been telling a pretty good story. One of the reasons why that stock was trading very near 52-week and all-time highs heading into their print last night, that would be on Monday night, the stock Stock's down 13.5% today because of some of the things that we just talked about, some of the deceleration hinted to in their guidance or so. Again, is this an important move for you when you're thinking about from a sentiment standpoint, when you think about how investors have been positioned, how investors have been moving towards any sort of story that they think gives exposure to this generative AI boom, whether it be on the cloud, from a cloud standpoint, from a chip standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, who has exposure to places that might obviously not be subject to bans, you know what I mean, and how they're positioned 
position. I'm just curious how you're thinking about this because to me, I want to actually footnote this move today in Oracle and put it into Microsoft's reactions to its earnings and guidance and some of the others here because I think it's really important. Absolutely. Why do we care about cloud? Because it's an indication of enterprise spending. And that is an indication of how enterprises as a whole are feeling against the changing macroeconomic backdrop. So Oracle, it's made a lot of strides, I think, surprising many folks out there in terms of being a serious cloud player and coming up against those three hyperscalers of AWS, Microsoft, and Google. It always, I remember, it always reports later on in the earnings season. And it's done this, it can either provide some optimism or a little bit of cold water to what we've seen. So we know that sort of cloud growth at the hyperscalers is slowing and Oracle has been part of the story and it, it has a later date, right? So it tells us something. One was... When were the other hyperscalers' earnings? Like almost a month ago now, right? Oracle is a better gauge of what we're seeing right now into the third quarter, the calendar third quarter. It, it does set the tone a little bit for what we see next quarter from the big ones that can move the market. All right. So last thing I want to hit here, because I thought this was really interesting. You had that, and, and I alluded to it at the start of the pod here. You did this long form piece. It was about 10 minutes on SPACs. You actually interviewed some, some really interesting folks. Imran Khan, who was at Snap when they went public. You also mentioned the fact that he was a banker on the Alibaba deal when Credit Suisse brought that, I think, nearly a decade ago. He's a guy that has been around the public, the private markets, investment banking, as an investor, as an entrepreneur. So I thought a lot of the commentary about SPACs was really interesting. And I think the focus of this was that this vehicle existed. A lot of companies went public in a very interesting time in the markets over the last few years. A lot of speculative things that didn't have earnings, things where people at these companies were willing to make some kind of wild statements about their outlooks and the like here, something that a lot of companies are going public regular way can't do. Why did you um, choose to spend so much time on SPACs? I thought it was really interesting. And some of the takeaways I thought were interesting because some of the conversations that I'm having with investors is I think a lot of investors are choosing this class of SPACs over the last few years as a monolith. There's a lot of babies thrown out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good companies there and probably some really interesting valuations. There's obviously been a lot of fraud. There's a lot of companies that never should have come to the public markets. I'm just curious why you focused on this subset of stocks and what were some of your big takeaways? So first of all, I have to give a very big shout out to Tech Check producer Jasmine Wu. She researched this thing so um, intensely and she wrote a lot of the really great parts of it and put it all together. And the reason we became interested in it is because I was talking to Imran Khan and he said, listen, what you just said, Dan, the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. These aren't all bad. And he looked at a company like Dave, which is a fintech. It went public at I think three or four billion dollars. Now, trades at under $100 million, he looked at the profile and said, look, at this is it has the profile of a series A company that I would see in the private markets, yet it's cheaper because the public markets, again, it goes back to this idea of valuation disparity. Private markets lag the public markets. So these SPACs brought companies that were not very mature. They were still in very much growth stage. And that's what Dave is, brought them public so that now you don't need to be an accredited investor in the private markets. You can actually get a piece of this company early on, and they've gone down so much, is what Imran says, is that he's starting to look for them. He also looked at Open Door and Grab, which is the Southeast Asian ride-hailing company, and he calls it valuation arbitrage. He's looking at the difference between private and public markets, and he's seeing that because SPACs got such a bad name, even if they're decent companies, they 
just got pushed down by so much. Yeah, and it's a pretty fascinating thing. I love the idea of the the kind of private public uh, valuation arbitrage, especially leading to what we just talked about with a lot of these hedge funds that would normally be buyers of IPOs. They've been participating in private growth rounds, right? And so now if you think about these companies that went public via SPAC and they're trading at massive discounts to where they would probably still be if they were in the illiquid private markets, there's got to be some interesting setups. I would also suggest that you're probably going to see some interesting M&A, especially when there are going to be financial buyers who like look for value and they're patient. But you also have strategic buyers here that might be able to see some things that are down 95% or so left for dead, don't have a lot of sponsorship here. So you might see some of that over the next kind of few months or so. So it'd be interesting to track that. You may also see more SPACs, right? One of Imran's points was that if he was, and like you said, he was a he was the lead banker on the Alibaba IPO. He worked within Snap. He's been an operator, banker. He's been on all sides of things. And investor says that, listen, what was so wrong about the last phase, what went wrong is that these companies tried to give financial projections. And that really led investors astray because in I want to say like nearly all cases, I just can't think of a case where they actually lived up to those financial projections. I remember Lucid, like a few months after putting out those financial projections as part of its stack, the CEO came on CNBC and could not back those up. Looking back, it was just it was terrible for the average investor. But I started to get interested at this moment as well because I saw companies still going public via SPACs. And we asked ourselves on the Tech Tech team, why won't they die? Truly, better.com. Why would you even go this route if you're going to drop 90% on your debut? VinFast was up. There was headlines that it was, was worth more than legacy car companies, but it wasn't the case. They're as confusing. They're as silly as ever, but at least it feels like retail investors have woken up to that. So maybe this is the flushing out. Maybe it still can be a good avenue as long as like Imran Khan advocates, you don't give those financial projections. You use it as a way to raise money from anchor investors. Yeah, and I guess the last point I'll just make here is that as long as I've been uh, an investor, the whole idea of IPOs, and and it's changed a lot, right? Because most individual investors did not have access to these. Most hedge funds did not have access to these in the private markets. And the whole MO of the corporations and the bankers would help them with this is like, you would leave something in the kitty. You price a deal, right? And b- based on demand, the deal, it might work really well out of the gate. But when you report that first quarter, three months after your IPO, you better be able to meet or beat what expectations were. And the exact opposite thing happened with SPACs is that these companies were willing to do whatever they could to come at the highest valuation and get the trade on the tape. And then they would just deal with what happens afterwards. And I think the point that Imran made, and again, I think it was a great one, is credibility in the private mar- or in the public markets and that shift from private to public is really important. And if you fail at the first opportunity that you have to gain that credibility with your new investors in you know post-IPO, it's likely to be a long road to hoe in the public markets. One other reason we did this piece is, I don't know if you were watching because you're not on X as much as you were or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, but Chamath Palahapatiya, the so-called SPAC king, started being pretty belligerent and defiant about his role in the SPAC mania. And we thought, you know, just because it's over doesn't mean that this could arise again, especially with better.com and some of the names that we're going. So we want to make sure that at least there's a piece online where people can go and get a good understanding of what happened so that they can make better decisions if we do see more SPACs and if they do become, again, a legitimate way to 
lists your company. Yeah. That, publicly. That, that, that's a great point. I saw some talk about that with Chamath, what he did. I, I interviewed him in front of an audience at the iConnections conference. This was back, I think, in late January, early February. And we talked about SPACs and we talked about it. And he was very honest about it. He said a lot of the things that he said in that tweet in the first bit about being in the arena, trying to get some stuff done, working with companies, working with bankers, trying to make money, okay, and, and making money for his investors. The funny thing about that is that as soon as somebody gets attacked on social media, the worst parts of them come out, right? I just think that's a really interesting point in a way is rather than trying to litigate these sorts of things across social media, there's probably better forums to do it. And I go back to my conversation from late January. Yeah. I thought it was a lot more instructive about what went wrong in that sort of environment rather than trying to do it in a tweet. And since we're talking, let me throw something at you, Dan. I'm, I'm so curious for your thoughts since we're talking about social media and X. What do you make so far of the excerpts and what has come out of the Elon Musk yeah. Oh, I'm definitely going to read it. Listen, I was fascinated by the book that came out that I think it was Ashley Vance wrote, I, I want to say maybe seven or eight years ago. He was a, He's a Bloomberg reporter. And that book to me was actually really instructive about some of the thoughts that I've had about him, the companies that he's created, that he's been CEOs of, some of the moves that he's made. And this one, I'll just go back to one thing. So I haven't read it yet. I've seen a lot of the excerpts. It doesn't look particularly flattering, in my opinion, of Elon at every step of the way. When, the, when Walter Isaacson's um, biography of Steve Jobs came out soon after he died. It was interesting. I found that book to be fascinating, yet a lot of folks very close to Steve Jobs, I think his wife, I think Tim Cook, a lot of other folks at Apple actually came out against the book. And I think it's really important to note that he sanctioned that book. Jobs spent a lot of time with Walter Isaacson. A lot of the stuff came straight from him. And so sometimes there's a lot of revisionist history when one of these biographies come out in a way. And I think Elon is probably already starting to regret the fact that he sat down and gave as much access to Isaacson because a lot of the stuff does not seem particularly flattering. So to me, I'll save it. You and I maybe will do a, a pod once we both read it and spend some time on it because I don't want too many hot takes on it from me <laughs> right now because he's someone that I've Fair. obviously been fairly critical of. I'll just say this, and I, I don't think there's going to be much in the book that changes my view. I think he's quite possibly the most dangerous man on the planet. And, and that means because of he owns SpaceX, which owns Starlink, which he has some of the stuff that's come out. His influence over a war in, in Europe, to me, just seems crazy. And it doesn't seem he wants that influence. Our history might not be exactly kind because of his ability and what he has to do by owning that company. I think that's true. I listened to Walter Isaacson sit down with Lex Friedman and it was almost two hours conversation. And I enjoyed hearing them put Elon Musk in context of some of the other greatest, doesn't mean good or bad, greatest thinkers in the history of the world, right? Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. And I thought that was helpful. You can actually see, I think with all of these people, there's that fine line between greatness and danger. And Elon Musk certainly toes that, but it was helpful to hear him put it in context for me, at least to think about what Elon Musk is doing. And maybe you don't get great change without great risk. I think that the Tesla trade, in, in my opinion, as far as what he's been able to do with EVs is the thing now that broadens out, right? It broadens out to the traditional manufacturers. It broadens out to some other great entrepreneurs. Maybe it's a Rivian or something. I, I don't know. I, I think that like the innovation there and that what he pushed forward, I think is fantastic. And hopefully that's something that I think a lot of others can benefit from. SpaceX and Starlink are very interesting. Neuralink is probably not 
is interesting to me. Again, fabulous entrepreneur. I just don't think what I hear from him, he seems to be very disingenuous about why he bought Twitter and all of that. And I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff in there. Some of it's obviously already come out a little bit. I just don't think he is this free speech maximalist because you don't kick people like me off of Twitter if that's the case for playing an April Fool's joke. I think he's full of shit. He cozies up to the totalitarian government, which is China, okay, which obviously does not allow free speech because he needs access to their manufacturing, to their consumer, to rare earth materials. Yet you buy a company like Twitter and eviscerate $30 billion in value within six months because you believe in free speech. Like those two things don't add up to me. You know what I mean? So uh, again, we'll read the book. We'll talk about it. You brought it full circle back to China. There you go. Well, there you go. All right. Listen, Deirdre Bosa, I really appreciate you joining me again on OK Computer. You guys can find her all week long reporting on CNBC for Tech Check and definitely check out her long form report that she did on SPACs. It was fantastic. And we'll put that in the show notes. So Dee, thanks for being here this week. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.